So uh, today we're beginning a series in the book of Colossians, and we have been in topical series for a while, and so I'm kind of excited to get into a series on a book of the Bible, and uh, we're going to be in this series for the next several weeks. The Apostle Paul is uh, widely accepted as the author of Colossians, and it's likely that Paul uh, wrote this letter uh, while he was imprisoned in Rome. And it appears that Paul had, uh, you know, a few purposes in writing the letter, but a significant reason for his writing to the Colossians was to combat false teaching uh, that they were being exposed to and that the apostle knew they needed to reject. Unlike many people today, Paul knew that the only important thing wasn't knowing what you're for. Paul knew that it was important to be against some things. And Paul was against false teaching. And so he wrote this letter in large part to combat uh, false teaching. And you uh, see that he explains this a little bit more as we get into uh, chapter 2 in the coming weeks. The exact nature of the false teaching has been debated, but one of the things that's widely accepted is that those espousing the false teaching believe that spiritual knowledge was available only to those with superior uh, intellects. Makes you wonder which of us would have passed their uh, test. Um, that, okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, Many believe that the source of the false teaching was likely coming from outside of the church, uh, not from a member of the congregation, but from outside the church. But the teaching was so well-known, so prevalent, uh, uh, and gaining such interest that it posed a threat uh, to the Christians there. Uh, Some have suggested that the nature of the false teaching was a form of Gnosticism that taught that uh, matter was innately evil, And of course, that had huge implications for Christianity because the early church and the church today teaches that that, uh, God took on flesh. God became uh, man. And the Gnostics said that this couldn't be because a holy God would not become something that was innately evil. And so they reduced Jesus to less than God. The Gnostics also denied that God was involved in the creation of the world because they reasoned that God would not create what they viewed to be evil matter. Others have suggested that the false teaching was a form of mysticism uh, that encouraged Christians to pray to angels for help and for protection from evil spirits. And of course, you can see how that false teaching would direct people away from Christ uh, as their source of help and hope. Others have said the false teaching amounted to a mixing of Greek, Jewish, and Asian religions with Christianity creating a mishmash of beliefs that erred from fidelity to Christ. And of course, none of those are mutually exclusive. So it could have been one of those errors. It could have been all of those uh, false teachings. But there is a common theme of all of the possibilities of what the false teaching might have been, a common thread that runs through each of them. And that is that they all served to devalue or demean Christ. Whatever theory of the nature of the false teaching, this fundamental fact doesn't change. The false teaching that the Colossians were being exposed to devalued and demeaned Jesus Christ. Presented him as something less than he really is. Tried to reduce him, minimize him, or even render him irrelevant. So here's the basic challenge that Paul is addressing. 
intellectuals from outside the church are bombarding the church with philosophies that demean Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? Think we might have a similar problem today? I'd say that we have a almost identical problem as what the Colossians were facing. And you, you don't have to look very hard to, uh, to see evidence of this. The intellectuals in our culture scoff when we point to Christ as the only way of salvation. The belief that God created everything that is and sustains the cosmos by his power is dismissed today as superstition. The enlightened ones among us reject fidelity to Christ and the scriptures in favor of crafting their own unique philosophy of life that pulls from a variety of sources, a little Christianity, a little Buddhism, a little dash of humanism, a pinch of Islam. And even many who profess faith uh, actually practice philosophies that demean Jesus Christ. I am completely convinced that what gets called Christianity by many within the church is actually not Christianity at all, but something that's called, it's kind of a big phrase here, moralistic therapeutic deism. And I'm convinced that moralistic therapeutic deism is the imposter faith that is practiced by a whole lot of people that slap the label Christian over their lives. So let's consider this a moralistic therapeutic deism for a little bit. Here are kind of the five identifying characteristics of it. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It demeans Christ. It devalues Christ. It isn't Christianity at all. But people in churches practice it. And so examine your own beliefs. most people who practice moralistic therapeutic deism like don't intentionally realize that's what they're doing. But, But examine your own beliefs. Does that pretty much summarize what you think about the Christian life? If so, I'd respectfully suggest that you're practicing something other than biblical Christianity. All of these things in our day, all of these false teachings have in common the devaluing and demeaning of Christ, making him less than he actually is, reducing his importance in our lives, making him one of many instead of the only that he actually is. And against the false teaching of his own day and echoing down through the past 2,000 years and standing in opposition to the false teaching of our own day, the Apostle Paul gives us a reminder, a corrective if needed, of exactly who Jesus is. And I'm going to start reading today Coloss- at verse 13, Colossians 1.13, and we're going to go through verse 20. So you can follow along in your Bible. It should be on the screen behind me as well. Here's what we read. 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then I just want you to note from verse 23 that Paul encourages them to not be moved from their hope in the gospel. And so against the false teaching of his day and ours that seeks to devalue and demean and diminish Christ, Paul articulates the supremacy of Christ. That is what the book of Colossians is about. That is what this series is about. And it's the title of today's message. In just a few short verses, Paul exalts Christ to his proper place, articulating truths about Jesus that cannot be compromised, truths that remind us exactly who Christ is, exactly why Christ deserves our worship, exactly why Christ cannot be reduced to one among many or just another consideration to weave into our philosophical Quilt. And so here are the reasons Christ can't be reduced to one among many, just another influential guru to add to the voices that you listen to in your life. Here's the first reason because he is the source of salvation. He's the source of salvation. Verse 13 He, God, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, Jesus, he loves, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness, of sins. Rescue isn't language that fits with placing Jesus in the context of a variety of philosophies from which we pick and choose to find meaning and encouragement and fulfillment. Rescue is something that is much more urgent than that, and it's much less about us than that. It's about us in that we get rescued, but we don't actually play a role in the rescue other than being the ones who get rescued. And so we are rescued from the dominion of darkness. We are brought into the the kingdom of the son God loves. These are things that are done for us. We don't do them. And then notice what Paul writes. He writes that we have redemption, forgiveness of sins through the son God loves. That there's no list of sources of redemption, options of ways to be redeemed. There's no disclaimer that Jesus is one source of many through which we can be redeemed or reconciled to God. No, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins through the Son, singular, God loves. Jesus Christ. He is our source. He is our only source of salvation. Not only is he our only source of salvation, but Paul then launches into perhaps the most beautiful writing that's ever been done about Jesus 
and articulates very clearly and powerfully that not only is Christ the source of salvation, but he is supreme over all. He is supreme over everything. And so let's briefly look at some of the things we learn in verses 15 through 20 about the supremacy of Christ. I'm not even going to cover all of them, but I'm going to cover several of them. First of all, we find that Christ is the image of the invisible God. It is Christ who has revealed to us what God is like. God's a spirit, and therefore invisible. But in Christ, God made himself visible to mortal eyes. In John 14, 9, Jesus went so far as to say that anyone who had seen him had seen God the Father. It's an amazing statement that Jesus made. Jesus perfectly reveals God to us. Jesus has made God visible and knowable. And so the supremacy of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. And then Paul goes on and says, he's the creator of all things. By him, all things were created, verse 16 tells us. Now, false teachers in Paul's day and in our own day try to reduce Jesus to simply being a created being, a a creature rather than the creator. And I I'm not meaning to pick on anyone here today, but one example of this is uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who who, who teach that before Jesus came into the world, he was a created angel, the archangel Michael. But they aren't alone in trying to reduce Jesus to less than who he really is. Since it is simply a fact that Jesus actually lived in history and he made some very bold claims about himself Most people, really all people, sooner or later have to reckon with Jesus. They have to figure out, what do I do with Jesus? And here's what many, I would say most, have concluded as they've had to reckon with Jesus. They have concluded that he is a great teacher of morality, but simply a man. A great man commendable man, but a man, a created being. Paul is very clear to tell us that this is wrong. Jesus is not a man, just a man, although a great man. He, He isn't a created angelic being. He cannot be devalued and demeaned as such because Jesus is the creator of all things. He isn't created He is the creator. Everything visible was created by him. Everything invisible was created by him, which is just a creative way of saying everything was created by Jesus. And get this, if this this doesn't help us understand the supremacy of Christ enough, Paul goes on. Not only were all things created by or through Jesus, but get this, all things were created for Jesus. Jesus. Here's what it means when Paul says everything was created for Jesus. Everything was created for Christ's honor and praise. In other words, it's all about Jesus. Everything exists 
for the honor and praise of Jesus. The universe was created for the honor and praise of Jesus. Your life, you were created, you exist for the honor and praise of Jesus. Jesus can't be just one among many. He he isn't just another teacher whose teachings we can weave into our philosophical quilt. Jesus is the reason for everything. He's God. Demean him as one among many if you choose. Reduce him to just a good moral teacher if you choose. Evaluate and approve some of his teachings and dismiss some of his other teachings if you choose. But here's what you'll be doing if you do that. You'll be denying the central reality of the universe. And here's something I kindly submit for your consideration. Your denying the central reality of the universe doesn't actually change the central reality of the universe. People can devalue, demean, and diminish Jesus, but them doing so doesn't actually make it true. Everything was created by him and for him, whether you affirm him or not. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the creator of all things. Everything was made for him. And Paul also tells us that Jesus holds everything together. This means that Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. He is the source of its perpetual existence. He controls the stars, the sun, the moon. The earth continues to spin on its axis because of Jesus. Gravity holds us on this third rock from the sun because of Jesus. Oxygen keeps your brain functioning because of Jesus. The New Living Translation says it this way, he holds all creation together. And then Paul goes on. He's the image of the invisible God, is the creator of all things. All things were created for his honor and his praise. He holds the universe together. And then Paul tells us he is the head of the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. The church exists because of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the leader of the church. Christ sustains the church. People think that they can hate the church but love Christ. But you can't. You simply can't. There's been a whole cottage industry that sprung up in the last several years of experts explaining how Christians and non-Christians alike really do love Jesus. They just can't stand the church. Now look, the church is always going to be a target for criticism, okay? I've been a part of the church a long time. I've seen a lot of bad things about the church, okay? It, it, it's not all rose petals in the church. It's not all warm, fuzzy feelings, The church is always an easy target for criticism. Here's why. 
because it is filled with human beings. It'd be wonderful if not for the people. It really would. The church is full of human beings who fail, who make mistakes, who often claim to follow Jesus, even though they don't really follow Jesus. So the church is an easy target for criticism, but here's the truth. Jesus is so connected to his church that you simply cannot be an honest person and say that you love Jesus while you despise his church. Jesus died for his church. Jesus is the head of his church. And this image of the church as a body and Jesus as the head of that body is used to communicate the unity of Christ with his church. You simply cannot love Jesus and hate his body. You just can't do it. But not only is this a reminder for the critics of the church of Christ's affection for her, it is also a reminder to the church of who our head is. Jesus is the head of his church. You're not, and I'm not. Jesus is. And those of us who lead within the church do so with authority for as long as we lead consistent with God's word, motivated by the honor and praise of Jesus. But that's as far as the authority of human leaders in the church goes, because the head of the church is Christ. The head of each of us individually is Christ. The church and your own life are about the honor and the praise of Jesus. So I want you to notice what Paul has done here. He has rightly pointed out that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is God. He's pointed out Christ's supremacy over creation. He has pointed out Christ's supremacy over his church. And then after articulating these things, he lets us know why he's articulated them in verse 18. And it is so that in everything, Christ might have the supremacy. What an answer to those in Paul's day who wanted to deny the deity of Jesus, to reduce him to only a created being. And what an answer to those in our day who do the same thing, try to deny Christ's deity, disagree with Jesus when he says he's the only way to God, presume to be able to craft our own religion by taking a little of what Jesus says and a little of what Muhammad said and a little of what Hinduism teaches, reducing Jesus to just one of many sources from which we draw to cobble together our own unique belief system. As we read Paul's words, so that in everything he might have supremacy, it's good for us to stop there and to ask a question, does he have supremacy in my life? Have I given Jesus the preeminence in my life? Have you? Do we honor the supremacy of Christ as we choose to never read the Bible? Do we honor Christ's supremacy when we demonstrate to our kids through our actions the gathering each week to worship him with other Christians is a commitment we can only keep once or twice a month? Do we live as if Christ has supremacy in our lives if we never share our faith? 
Does Christ really have supremacy in our lives if every time his teaching comes in conflict with our preferences, we choose our preferences? And I don't say any of this to condemn anybody because I'll just be honest with you, you know, I've been guilty of all of these things at uh, different times. Do our lives give evidence to the supremacy of Christ? We just need to honestly evaluate this. And if the answer is no, then we need to repent. We need to recommit to, to giving him the honor and praise that he's due, the honor and praise that the entire creation exists for, the honor and praise that is the reason for your existence. And then Paul goes on. He, he's, just, he's just unrelenting and showing us the supremacy of Jesus. And he says in verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The supremacy of Christ. All God's fullness dwells in Jesus. This phrase simply means that Jesus is fully God. Against the false teaching of Paul's day and ours that tries to reduce Jesus to something less than he really is, Paul says categorically and unequivocally that Jesus is fully God. He's not sort of kind of like God. He's not a little bit God. He's not 40 or 50% God. Or as Christians often believe, he's not 33 and a third percent God. Jesus is fully God. You don't get any more supreme than that. The supremacy of Christ. He is fully God. And then verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself, through Jesus, God has chosen to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then verse 21 goes on and talks about the reconciliation to God of the people that Paul is writing to. And I reference that to to, uh, draw our attention to the fact that there are two reconciliations that are pointed out here both accomplished through the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross. There is the reconciliation of people, which is already accomplished for all who believe in Jesus. And then there is the reconciliation of things on earth and in heaven. This is a reference to a time when all of creation will be freed from the effects of sin and restored to God's original design. The supremacy of Christ. He reconciles people to God. He reconciles all things to God. He he returns the entire cosmos to God's original design. In Romans, Paul describes it as the day when creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Here's what all of this tells us. That everything, the universe, you, me, the reason for existence, it's all about Jesus. 
It was all created by him. It was all created for him. Paul has driven home the point to the Colossians and to us that Christ is supreme over everything. And now let me remind you that Paul has written this from prison. He's sitting in prison. He is unjustly imprisoned. He's imprisoned for his faith. And in prison, Paul knows, and Paul encourages others, that Christ is supreme over everything. No matter what life is throwing at you right now, no matter how bleak things seem to be for you, your Savior, Jesus Christ, is supreme over everything. In your trouble, remember the reason for your existence, the honor and the praise of Jesus. That purpose for our existence does not change regardless of our circumstances. One of these days, Jesus is going to liberate the entire cosmos from its bondage to decay. Your difficulty, my difficulty will not be forever because Christ is supreme over all things. Paul tells us all of these things from prison so that we will not allow ourselves to be influenced by the false teachers and reduce Jesus to something less than he really is in our lives. Most of us, if we're left to our own reasoning, if we're left to our own devices, are very susceptible to being influenced by false teachings that lead us away from Jesus. Moralistic therapeutic deism is one such way. It's a false teaching that I personally believe is probably more widely believed in American churches than the actual gospel is. Some of us face the temptation to be influenced by those voices, Oprah, who tell us that Christianity, this little subliminal message, uh, who tell us that Christianity is just one of many religions or philosophies that we should pull from to create our own beautiful tapestry of beliefs. Some of us would prefer that Jesus hadn't been so exclusive, hadn't been so clear that he's the only way to God. Some of us face the temptation to reduce Jesus to just a great moral teacher because we stumble over the claim that he's God. And some of us, when times are difficult, are tempted by those false voices that tell us Jesus doesn't really care about us, isn't actually involved in our lives, and cannot be trusted if he won't remove our pain. Paul wrote all of this to remind the Colossians and to remind us that we cannot make room in our thinking for the false teachers and their false teachings because no matter how tempting the false teachings are, they remain false. The truth is that Christ is supreme over everything. 
we do exist for his honor and praise. And when we deny this, we deny the central reality of the universe, we deny the reason for our existence, and we alienate ourselves from God. We do it. He doesn't do it. We do it. We alienate ourselves from God. In verse 23, which we didn't read, but in that verse, Paul appeals to the Colossians to not be moved away from the hope of the gospel that they had received. Friends, the enemy of your soul was working overtime to move you away from the hope of the gospel that you have received. Scripture lets us know that in the last days, the love of many is going to grow cold and that many are going to fall away. Paul writes to remind you that everything that demeans Jesus is false. He is supreme over everything. And he does this so that you will not be removed from the hope of the gospel that you've received. We must choose. We must refuse to be moved from the hope of the gospel. In Matthew 24, Jesus warned his followers that they were going to go through seasons when many would turn away from the faith, be led astray by false teachers, wickedness would increase, and people's love would grow cold. And he said to them in verse 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Friends, we are living in just such a time. You see it all around us. Some of you are facing temptation even today to let go of the hope that you've received in the gospel. And my prayer for you today is that as you face this constant onslaught of voices trying to move you in the direction of demeaning Christ, trying to move you away from the hope of the gospel that you've received, that the words of Paul, written in God's word, the Bible, would penetrate your heart and would remind you today that Christ truly is supreme over everything and that you would not be moved away from the hope of the gospel you've received and that you would stand firm to the end and receive your reward. That's my prayer for each one of us today. Why don't you stand?